Welcome to Democracy Nerd. I am Jefferson Smith. Today's episode, we're going to talk about shadowy cabals. When it comes to movies and television, shadowy cabals make for excellent characters, whether it's the Freemasons inspiring Nicolas Cage to steal the Declaration of Independence or the Stonecutters and the Simpsons pulling the strings in Springfield. Good times. But what about shadowy cabals pulling the strings in real life, impacting people without our knowledge? And I'm not referring to the American Legislative Exchange Counselor, Alec. Alec is outspoken and proud of themselves and can be found in state houses across the country. There's also the family or the fellowship, a U.S. religious and political organization responsible for creating national prayer breakfast. However, it's hard to be considered shadowy when there's a multi-part series on Netflix that looks into the history of the family. So it'd be a little shadowy, but less shadowy. But what about the Council for National Policy? How much do you know about that? How familiar is this shadowy cabal to the national listenership of the Democracy Nerd. Our guest today believes you should be more familiar with this group. We're joined today by Ann Nelson, award-winning journalist, author, and playwright. She's currently a research scholar at Columbia. She first exposed the doings of the Council for National Policy in her book, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right. She joins us today to talk about her continued reporting on the group, help us understand what the heck it is and why it might matter. And thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Democracy Nerd. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here. Let's start with the basics. Who the heck is the Council for National Policy? It sounds relatively anodyne. Well, you said they're not Alec or the family, but actually the director of Alec and many figures involved in the family are members. So what it is, is a coordinating body that meets in secret and delegates different organizations to do different tasks. And uh, some people say, well, it's a conspiracy theory, this and that. And I say, well, my book has a thousand footnotes. Everything's thoroughly documented. Uh, they meet in secret and they have plans. So if you want to call it conspiracy theory, be my guest, but it's, it's, demonstrable. Well, all a conspiracy create... means, all a conspiracy means is two or more people meeting in secret to plan something that isn't good, right? So well, they've got about really 400 good. members, so they right. qualify. More than and uh, what's what's very interesting about them, and I would say their, their superpower, is that it has kind of a top-down command structure. So they divide up the tasks for their various political objectives. And one, one cohort will provide the money from the mega donors, uh, like the DeVos family has been active from the start. Another will work on political strategy, like Richard Vigory. He's been active since the start. And then you have groups like ALEC and the State Policy Network, whose directors belong to the CMP. Uh, and they coordinate state level activity. They have legal organizations. One of them just uh, became prominent with the abortion pill case in Texas, where the judge had been a litigator for the organization that was prosecuting the case. So they create an inside job, uh, especially on the state level, which has been neglected by the Democrats by and large. The other factor is that they've got their own media system. So we're talking Christian television, fundamentalist radio, uh, tons and tons of online uh, digital platforms. Uh, so they managed to reach voters in swing states. 
and bend them to their will and motivate them to go to the polls, often with spurious arguments. So let's start with, you said tasks. They have tasks and plans. They meet together the top-down structure and divvy up the tasks according, according to the plan or to execute the plan. What sort of tasks and what sort of plans? So, for example, um, when Claire McCaskill was running for her Senate seat in Missouri, I, I did a kind of case study of that election. And one of the groups was a Susan B. Anthony list. They go door to door with very sophisticated political data gathered from their ally, the Koch network. And when they go to do canvassing, they don't show up as a Republican party. They show up as activists uh, who are under the radar. So they, they had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of voter outreach uh, events. Another member of the, the uh, organization is the director of the National Rifle Association. They did the same thing in Missouri. And so when you have uh, the Democrats who are kind of neglecting uh, some of these swing states in the middle of the country. Then you've got the Republican Party putting out their ground troops. And then you've got this third factor who are activists from the Council for National Policy. Another one is the Turning Point USA. Charlie Kirk, the director of TPUSA, is a member of the CNP. So they're the youth wing. And you don't just have the canvassing. Uh, going door to door, you also have these voters surrounded by their media. So it's it's been pretty effective in a number of cases. Do they have a policy agenda or is that policy agenda have a short list that's worth dwelling upon? Absolutely. Uh, now, according to their you know, vision statement, they say it's to restore the United States to Judeo-Christian values. But from the beginning, there was a very strong presence of fossil fuel industries in this organization. And a lot of the fundamentalist religious leaders were from what I call the American petrostates, uh, which be, would be my home state of Oklahoma, Texas, and Louisiana. Uh, and the right-wing fundamentalists who are pounding away on social issues like anti-LGBT policies work hand in glove with the fossil fuel people who are trying to do away with environmental regulations on corporate taxes. So in order to execute that, they have resources. You said, well, it's divvied up and one arm is sort of the fundraising arm and they raise money for the organization. It sounds like they sort of coordinate and don't pool the money for their own organization. So if you looked at their, uh, their income statements, they might not be that big, uh, but they guide money elsewhere. But that's merely, uh, that's a guess based on nothing. What sort of budget are they working with or how do they manage the money? Well, the Council for National Policy just convenes people at luxury hotels. Um, a lot of them are, off, meetings are outside Washington, D.C. Some of them are in Southern California. And they convene and decide on their goals and then go into the closed door rooms and and divvy out the, the uh, tasks to the people who can execute them. Um, so it's very coordinated. I call it kind of a corporate structure. It's like, okay, you do research and development, you do marketing, you do publicity, and you follow instructions from the top. The Democrats have a very different structure. They don't really have their own dedicated media. 
they depend on the national news media, which often bends over backwards to critique the Democrats even more than the Republicans to show they're uh, fair-minded. So they don't have this, this advertising system that masquerades as journalism. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's the opposite of a level playing field. And that was the next question I wanted to get to, or one of the things I wanted to get to, which is what makes it different? What makes it different than any smoke-filled room or any group of sort of power brokers trying to do stuff? And I heard you say a couple of things. One, because it's sort of vertically integrated, right? Because it connects fundraising to grassroots to media. Uh, another it, to policymaking, or at least policy advocacy. And another is because it's asymmetrical. There isn't something like this. Uh, that you don't have a, a competing pro-democracy structure, pro-social structure, or progressive structure, or democratic structure. Those are all different things, but there isn't really, a, at least what I'm hearing you say, and I can further inquire about it, there's nothing like that. That It's not sort of competing, countervailing uh, counsel on you know, liberal do-gooding. Absolutely. And you know, in, in observing the two sides, you see that this organization in particular has this corporate structure with with top-down command and control. Uh, you know, you call it quasi-military. Um, on the Democrat side, you have a culture of, I would say, lawyers and and say journalists and academics who enjoy debating with each other. And that's when you get into political campaigns where the circular firing squad takes over. Uh, I would point to the situation with Al Franken as an example. Right. I mean, that was uh, unintelligible from a strategic point of view, a sacrifice of a, of a very important Senate seat of a charismatic senator who was badly needed. And so in terms of the asymmetry, you have Al Franken being purged for a joke photograph from years ago. And you have a convicted, convicted sex offender as the front runner for the Republican Party. Now, this is not what I call a level playing field. You wrote a piece, and, and this is, and I appreciate that very much, and and in uh, that perspective, and you articulating that perspective, and I'll say a bit more that very often we will have really smart guests and our authors, typically brilliant people, and who will talk about the uh, the partisanship and the political divide in the country. And and the and they'll use the term polarization, and suggesting that there's sort of two hands and two arms and a globe that has a top and a bottom, and or a you know magnet that has a has a pole on one side, another pole on the other side, and so much of our you know left hand side of the aisle, right hand side of the aisle, so much of our rhetorical architecture, so much of our thought structure is built on an idea of rough symmetry. And so even when CNN is deciding whether or not to do and deciding to do a town hall for Donald Trump, well, it's like, okay, well, he lies a lot, but that's like half of the truth that people need to hear, right? Because thing, there's kind of a, there's kind of two poles or kind of two parties. I have a right hand and a left hand. And, and what I hear you saying is it's not really how the world works. It's not really how political power works, that there are pods of power and the kind of way that the current uh, right wing, and even look, look there. I say right instead of left, and that suggests there's another hand. That this, uh, that this deeply conservative, uh, arch conservative movement has a power structure that doesn't really have an opposing pole. Doesn't really have a left hand. Well, yeah, that's and that's the land of false equivalencies. 
So you say, okay, on the one hand, you have a democratic administration which has flaws. And on the other hand, you had the last Republican administration that tried to overthrow the elections. Those are not equivalents. And I think that the national media has been accused of being liberal. Um, and, and so they don't tend to understand the gravity of the situation. But the other factor, as I said, is when you have, you know, I call what the right wing media sphere does uh, unidirectional advertising, right? Uh, buy our toothpaste, it's the best. We're not going to talk about anybody else's. And by the way, we won't always be telling you the truth. Uh, the one example that I, I cite is that they claim that Democrats support abortion on demand up to the day of birth, which is a horrific idea, right? But it doesn't exist. But if you surround people with this disinformation and convince them of it, you've got them in your pocket to vote against their interest in, in areas like public schools and clean air and water um, through, through selling the lie. Now, the other point that I, I, I try and try to make is that uh, you know you have to look at our electoral system and see it for its reality. And I talk about this a lot in my book, Shadow Network, and demographics. So the Democrats decided a while ago that public opinion was on their side, right? More, more Americans vote for Democrats than for Republicans. Fine. More Americans support their policies on abortion, LGBT issues, et cetera. Fine if that's how our system worked. But we've got an electoral college, we've got a Senate, we've got a disproportionate amount of weight that goes to underpopulated states in the middle where the high propensity votes are older white people. Now, the Council for National Policy and one of their strategists, Ralph Reed, has designed this, this massive program going back decades to go into their churches and use their churches as, as campaign centers where they put voter guides in the church bulletins. They, they bus them to, to polling places on election day with the expectation that they know how they're gonna vote. The Democrats have nothing like that. And in fact, when, when I've gone to speak in states like Wisconsin, I've been told by Democratic canvassers that the, 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 you know, in 2016, the party didn't even give them literature to hand out at the door. So this neglect is what Midwesterners would call chickens coming home to roost. So what do we call, and I'm going to give a, I, I, I'm going to say more about this. I'm going to put more context into this question, but how do you characterize, what do we call their brand of politics? And, and when I say that, that you might one might be tempted to call it right wing. As soon as we do that, of course, we've reinforced the undergirding or rhetorical superstructure that gets us think of right and left, polarization, symmetry, to use your term, false equivalency. And so I wonder what is our term? An old term is conservative. That's also a tricky word, given that so much of what is pushed by these folks is not something that's really built to conserve very much, but is in fact a, a sort of a radical, proactive agenda to, uh, yeah, in, in some respects, restore a, a certain version of white uh, Anglo patriarchy. But 
and, and that's not really conserving at this point, but it's not really to conserve things like legal protections, conserve things like a middle class, conserve things like the natural environment, conserve things like democratic principles, conserve things like functioning democracy itself, conserve things like public structures still being able to function or keep up with times and function even better. So with that sort of long way around the barn, how do you characterize, how should we characterize these politics? Not only to be descriptive, but also to be helpfully descriptive. Yeah, in the in the book, I go back to one of their architects, Paul Lyric, and his uh, his writing and and memoranda and speeches are overtly we want to blow it up. They're not conserving anything. Uh, they want to blow up entitlements. They want to blow up Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. They want to blow up public schools uh, and create an economy where all of the benefits flow to the top half of 1% uh, and their their servants. Um, So, yeah, they're, they're pretty open about it when they're talking to each other. And the thing is that they have been in touch with the population that they need to vote. So they've used uh, taglines like you can vote for freedom. The Democrats want to take away your guns. Uh, And they they do it through, again, this corporate strategy where they do focus groups and and pay a lot of attention to to branding. Right. You don't get to a term like birthday abortion and the horror that that suggests without testing it on vulnerable people, uh, which is what they do. And it's it's really tragic because you see in these these states where they're active that the voters that they persuade pay a terrible price. I, when I go back to Oklahoma, I hear about schools in Tulsa where they're using 20 year old textbooks that are taped together uh, and, and, and plaster from the ceilings falling on their heads because they have the freedom not to pay taxes. And now the governor is is directing a lot of the revenues to religious schools and and homeschooling. So what they do is basically attack anything that has public in the title, public schools, public health, public libraries, right? And as I said, the citizens pay the price. So what's our term? What's What's our language? If well, I, I, I tortured myself over that writing the book, and I ended up with radical right because they're radical. Yeah. Now, they're not they're not your grandfather's conservatives. They're not your grandfather's Republicans. Nothing nothing like Eisenhower would be you know purged from their ranks overnight. Sure. Um, no, so, as would as would by the, the way the religi- Richard Nixon. And, yes, and religious right is another useful term. So I want to I want to lobby you for a moment and and also invite you to help us keep working on this help keep thinking about it because I do once we use the word right it does two things I don't like one a synonym of right is correct two it suggests that there is an equal and countervailing force on the left which ain't true this has been a movement that is and and I've come up with a few words that that are helpful to me just in the last moments that I'm working on and I'm not trying to impose those my request is that we continue to work on this project it sounds picayune it sounds small and detailed and just dancing on the head of a pin. But I actually think the words we use matter. Saying principles instead of norms, I think matters. Saying market fundamentalist instead of neoliberal matters. If you want the word liberal to mean something that people might be able to vote for. I think there is a consistent mistake 
that is being made by pro-democracy forces to pick language that might work to publish an academic paper, but might not work to communicate to a regular person or might not work if one were actually engaged in the business of persuasion and in trying to uh, not only win an election, but even help win an argument. So the so I, I want to invite broadly uh, you and anybody listening sort of into that project, because I think it's a project that matters. And I appreciate you saying, well, I struggled over that because I struggled over too. I'm not speaking, I'm not speaking as an expert. I'm speaking as as uh, as someone who is curious and who prioritizes it, not one who has it all figured out. But a few words I like, if somebody is opposed to democracy, I like saying they're anti-democracy. And anti-democracy forces is something that's not too hard to say. It's not that confusing. And as long as you're using it accurately, it works. Another is uh, Christian fundamentalist. And I'm trying to come up with something that's like capitalist Christian fundamentalist or Christian capital fundamentalist. Because I think that even instead of the term neoliberal, which has been used for almost opposing ideas to describe almost opposing movements. Uh, and it, most people don't know what it means. And most people, when they read it, well, it sounds like a new liberal, which means like, I don't know, 21st century Paul Wellstone, which is almost the opposite of what people mean when they uh, when they say it. So what they're actually talking about is people who are capital fundamentalists, market fundamentalists. So anyway, it is mostly an invitation. And I throw out a few words to try to describe not only where they might sit, in a uh, sit on a spectrum that probably doesn't exist or which pole they operate in a polarized structure that also doesn't exist. But in fact, how do we describe what they're trying to accomplish, right? What they're actually doing. And, and that's where I think in terms of fundamentalism, I think in terms of anti-democracy and I'll shut up there or give you a chance to respond. Yeah, I, I appreciate your impulse. Um, I also you know, in, in looking at various, very astute people who do polling, uh, find that the word democracy does not really land with a lot of voters. Uh, they're more likely to vote uh, on an issue that seems less abstract to them, like inflation and the egg prices. Uh, so another problem I see is that I've, I've been having spirited discussions with my colleagues about including the, the term Christian, right? Because a lot of times, even among people who are themselves Christians, it sounds like they're, they're stigmatizing Christians who are a powerful swing vote in the states that have to be won. Yeah, there's still a majority of Americans who are Christians. Well, yeah, the numbers are in motion, but but if you look at the states that are determining our elections, and you know, like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, uh, Georgia, Arizona, if you make Christians feel that they're being criticized for being Christian, that's a strike against you, and also it's it's not fair, right? I mean, because. The problem is not caused by people being Christian. The, American Christianity is divided on this in this landscape. Th there are these low, inf often low information, but high propensity voters who can be mobilized by the disinformation. There are certainly, uh, you know, a significant number of Christians who are progressive, and what we have in the middle are a lot of people who are not that politicized, uh, but they feel like they're being left out of the conversation. And I've, I've, I've had uh, 
experiences talking to moderate Baptists who say the Democrats act like we don't exist. The Republicans are pounding the drum for us all the time. Uh, you know, we don't want to be demonized for being Christian. Uh, we we want to find a tent that we can gather under that feels like the center, right? And that I think is the big challenge in our political system. So, Aura, I appreciate what you had to say about Christian. And right now, yeah, sixty three percent of Americans describe themselves as Christians, and that percentage is higher in all of the states you mentioned, right? Certainly higher in Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The uh, and and I, I'm still interested in the word fundamentalist because even uh, for somebody of, of any of any religion, uh, having an issue with fundamentalism is someone that is something that someone can have, like a Mormon fundamentalist. Uh, can be someone who's criticized by a member of the LDS church, right? Because a Mormon fundamentalist kind of means a thing that to to a member of the LDS church can be worrisome. Uh, the uh, so, so not imposing that one, but I, I really hear you. I want to put a plug in for democracy that I know that if you say, hey, which do you care about more about democracy or eating tomorrow? People say eating tomorrow. But that's not a reason why I think we deprioritize talking about democracy. In fact, that's why I think in part because the word still polls very well. It might not rank as high as eating tomorrow, but it still polls very well. And we're not going to build a movement around, a long-term movement around inflation, right? That's not going to be something that that builds a lasting governing majority, much less supermajority. I think democracy can, and giving that word meaning, letting people know what we're talking about, building a coalition around it is powerful enough and strong enough that over time, I think it can give us something. And I wouldn't abandon freedom because I don't think... I don't think the the to use your term the radical right to use my term the fundamentalists or the anti-democracy folks. I don't think that they're actually working for freedom, but the word freedom is very useful, and democracy is the closest I've had. So I'd put a plug in for democracy. Uh, I've I've used the word confederates, you know, usually and usually talking about like Trump confederates, kind of meaning friends, but also to cite that part of what's going on is a. Uh, an attempt to sort of reestablish the politics of the South, not extending to slavery, but certainly extending to low-key Jim Crow or otherwise. Uh, but we, we don't have to dwell on this further, but I don't think we've got it figured out yet, including the people who are the most widely read people. I don't think they have it figured out yet either. I don't think they know they need to figure it out. There you go. Uh, I, I, and I, I do feel that, that, you know, speaking to you as a fellow nerd, a lot of the terms we're using have, have you know, a, a technical meaning. So if you look at Christian theology, fundamentalist is, is a term that applies to a certain interpretation of the Bible. Now, it usually coincides with a political position, but not always. I have the same argument with people about the term fascist. Fascist had a precise historical meaning, and it's not fully replicated in our environment. So I think I think we all have to, you know, probably imitate what the Council for National Policy does, and just double down in terms of focus groups and branding, and see what resonates with the voters who have to be persuaded. And I don't, I don't, I haven't seen that happen yet. It's a fair point. You wrote a piece, and this is a decent segue to our somewhat semantics or definitional or at least word choice conversation. And thanks for thanks for being willing to entertain it. Uh, you wrote a piece last summer for the New Republic 
a rare peek inside the vast right-wing conspiracy. That phrase coined by Hillary Clinton, if not coined, at least popularized in a TV interview she did, it was scoffed upon. Uh, She was lampooned about it. Was she ultimately proven correct? Oh, absolutely. She she saw it. Um, And there was a lot of reluctance on the part of particularly the media to follow it up. And in fact, even when my book came out uh, in 2019, uh, there were people who were really reluctant to buy my argument, despite my 1,000 footnotes. And then on January 6th, the organizations that were partners for the Council for National Policy came front and center with the protest and the attempt to overturn the elections. And that was when the penny dropped and you started getting pieces about CNP appearing in the New York Times and the New Yorker and the Washington Post. So I think that, you know, there's this, you know, there's this disease of complacency that we've got going on. I don't think people realize how, how perilous our situation is. Um, and part of the problem is that the whole structural issue. So I, I've spent years as a journalist and teaching journalism at Columbia. Uh, journalists have beat. So maybe your beat is the Supreme Court or it's Congress uh, or what have you. You don't cross those lines. Now, the Council for National Policy has simultaneous operations on multiple fronts, state legislatures, federal courts, uh, party precincts in in, local communities, school boards. They're all over the school boards right now. These school board uh, disruptions with all of the ugliness, they're, they're involved in that up to their necks. So it's very hard for people to, you know, we need a democracy dashboard where you can kind of look at everything that's going on at the same time and rate the risk in each area and prepare a response. What allowed for this rare peak into the vast right-wing conspiracy? Say more about that. The Center for Media Democracy uh, secured the agenda for a meeting. Tell us the tell us more about that story. Sure. When I wrote my book, uh, the only directory of the members of the CNP was published by the Southern Poverty Law Center, and they had obtained a copy of the 2014 roster, which was very interesting indeed because it had Steve Bannon, it had Kellyanne Conway, and I just I came close to memorizing that thing, and figuring out how these organizations and these individuals work together to support Trump in the 2016 election. Um, Now, after my book came out, the Center for Media and Democracy uh, and an organization called uh, Documented, and then an extraordinary researcher in Australia named Brent Allpress figured out how to access more up-to-date rosters. So now for the first time, we can have rosters that go uh, from pretty much 2016 all the way through to 2022. And when one of those became available, that's when I wrote that piece and said, oh, let's look at the update here. Oh, look, there's a whole bunch of new doctors. And these doctors have all been involved in COVID disinformation, telling people not to get vaccinated, telling people ivermectin is a cure. And as a political maneuver to sow distrust in federal institutions like the CDC and uh, Anthony Fauci, and it has worked. 
Interesting. So they recruit, some of the membership is long-term, but some of the recruitment is also opportunistic. Also, some of the recruitment is based on a potential set of issues of the day. Absolutely. And the presidency is certainly uh, part of that. So when I was writing, the president of the Council for National Policy was a, a <laughs> well, I don't know what term we're going to use, but I will say right-wing Baptist sure. uh, who was named Tony Perkins, who was head of the Family Research Council. And he was assigned to rally the religious fundamentalists to support Trump. And he used his radio show and his YouTube channel and everything else in, in that interest. Now, there are two-year terms. And once Trump won, their goal was to rewrite the tax bills. And what they wanted to was to make a, an incredibly regressive tax bill that favored the ultra-wealthy and screwed the poor which is what Trump did. And the head of the CNP at that point was a financier named William Walton. Now it's rotated again. And the head of the CNP is a person working on the legal front. His name is Tom Fitton. And he's been working in manipulating the federal courts because that's been their biggest item on their agenda. So yes, you have core members and then you have some kind of rotation. We also know that there are people who are members and who attend the meetings who don't show up on the rosters. But at least we know, you know, a hundred times more than we did 10 years ago. Say more. You've said the DeVos family, you've said Richard Vigory, you've said Charlie Kirk, Ralph Reed. Who are some of the other members that people may have heard of or people, really important members that people may not have heard of? Well, right now, uh, one of their big stars is Leonard Leo. Sure. And Leo uh, was running the Federalist Society, and then he scored a $1.6 billion uh, award from a Chicago financier, a uh, businessman named Barry Side, and he's using that to continue to put, uh, I would say, mostly conservative Catholics on, on the federal, in the federal courts, which, oh, hey, uh, that, you know, you look at what he's accomplished, it's been pretty damn successful. And he's, he's really going for broke with this $1.6 billion funding a lot of these partner organizations. So they're funding lawsuits at the same time they're, you know, uh, creating, oh, well, Fitton involved, is involved in a lot of amicus briefs in, in these very controversial lawsuits. Um, but they also, uh, he, he, they, they do a lot of FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act requests, with the goal of paralyzing federal agencies. So, you know, it's, it's a plan to, to gum up the works of our federal courts. And our courts are a mess right now. I mean, people are, are shocked at the state of the courts. So I appreciate your project, like genuinely appreciate your project. And I think it is, so it has to, uh, I don't know, leak into, but help educate uh, people's understanding of politics generally, including those who uh, pundit all the time, that so much of the focus, I mean, there's lots of focus on Donald Trump, uh, insufficient focus on what begat that, what begat the various movements that he was able to glom on to, to gain power, who then because of his glomming on, were able to be motivated to stick with him 
uh, to hear one of the leaders of the Christian coalition who said, well, yeah, Trump is a transactional guy. I stuck with him because I know he'll, and I will stick with him as long as he, you know, continues to be our guy on this stuff with no, uh, no particular concern about his personal morality, his personal religion or anything about if, if this is the kind of person that one would think the Bible wanted to be president, but rather as a political deal. And there is a lot of focus. And, and I heard that when I was frankly listening to a right-wing podcast, right? The, the interview with them, and it was very candid about it. And there's a lot of focus, of course, about Trump and some about George Santos, but much less about what's below. The Titanic didn't sink because of the part of the ice that it could see. It sunk because of the part of the ice it couldn't see. And we can help people see better, see more deeply, see more broadly, see more meaningfully. What are some of the things you think people are missing because of the insufficient awareness of organizations like, or maybe even specifically, the uh, the organization that is the Council of National Policy, what do you think people are missing? What are we getting wrong in our discourse? Well, I think the one big problem we have right now is that Americans miss the hyper-local story, right? And, you know, over the last few decades, our population has increasingly urbanized. We're more coastal than we've been in the past. Um, the dominant news media is very much focused or, or, or based in the on the East Coast. So one thing that's happened is is the erosion of professional journalism in the states where it's badly needed. Right? You have you have like over a thousand counties in the United States that have no local news organization whatsoever, and that makes these populations very susceptible to disinformation. And when you have partner organizations from the Council for National Policy moving in on these states, they do it like gangbusters. Uh, the Leadership Institute, which is one of the core organizations, trains uh, candidates and campaign workers and campaign managers across the country, but they focus on the critical districts and counties that they need to yeah. win. And they are way in advance. So I was looking for you know one of my recent articles at Texas, and like over a year before the congressional elections, they were in over forty counties in Texas training people up for 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 the election, and the Democrats tend to swan in two weeks early and knock on some doors and be surprised when they lose. So you just you know for people who care about democracy, I think there are a lot. Uh, but they need to rouse themselves and realize that they've got to invest, first of all, in the states that are making the difference in terms of these elections. Now, I can't argue that the states I named, you know, are, are the glamour spots where people want to spend their vacations. But the reality is that if you look at the last two presidential elections, they're the swing states that made the difference. And in various cases, some of these states were swung by just over 10,000 votes, right? That's nothing. And if the Democrats and the people who are defending democracy with a small b don't figure out how to engage with those populations and make them feel included in the national conversation and to inform them factually, uh, they were just handing it to the people who want to destroy the country. 
I want to get to lessons. I want to go back to some membership stuff, but I want to talk about some lessons, what we can learn from this. So I've heard you say a few things. I try to jot a few of them down. One is a focus on long-term, a focus on sort of uh, infrastructure, not only the race of the moment, but sort of movement building. The second thing I heard you say was integration and coordination. So you actually use the term corporate structure. There might be able to might be able to be ways to perform integration and coordination that don't require a fully top-down corporate structure, but nonetheless, the the various elements of the tasks understand what the other tasks are doing and they're able to move in a strategic way. A third thing you said is I heard you say leadership development. Uh, that this puts people, not only moves Leonard Leo from being uh, an important figure in the Federalist Society to being the best funded uh, sort of activist in the world, in fact, the best funded activist in human history, uh, but also in the myriad of not just Charlie Kirk's, but all the folks Leadership Institute has spawned. Uh, So a a thought about leadership development. Another is thinking in terms of swing districts. And if you combine, and that's not new, but the combination of working on infrastructure and apparatus and long-term and coordination and mapping that onto thinking about where over the next five to 10 years, legislatures and congressional races and presidential races will be won. That is, if not novel, at least a pretty important mixture of, of strategy. What other lessons are there? What other things, either elements of the playbook to borrow or elements of the playbook to be wary of? Well, I will take issue with you on one matter. We don't have five or 10 years. We don't have that time. Because the way it's set up is that if if the Republicans, whether it's Trump or DeSantis, take the White House and hold Congress, they will continue to appoint the federal judges. And there won't be any way of examining the quality of these justices. They will be their handpicked candidates to do their will. And what that means in state after state is increased gerrymandering, increased voter suppression for young people and minorities, and they will keep rewriting the playbook until they guarantee their victory, regardless of the popular will. They are well along the way in doing that. And we are just over a year away from having one of our last chances to ward those events off. So, you know, uh, the other part of it is that when the Titanic hits the iceberg, you don't kind of, uh, you know, break open a new bottle of champagne and sit down to play cards. People should run for school boards. People should run for both Democratic and Republican parties, uh, chairmanships in their precincts and defend democracy on a grassroots level, they should study things like uh, the, the University of Virginia's Center for Democracy and look at the numbers and which states are in play uh, and not assume, I mean, you know, yeah, the New York Times is great, the networks are great, but they're going for headlines and clickbait and they're not really going to put the picture together for people. People have to work a little harder because I'm sorry, it's complicated. It just is, and they, and it's not only complicated, they have intentionally obscured what they're doing. So uh, a few of us have been updating the strategies in the Washington Spectator, as well as the New Republic. You can go uh, and read analysis that puts it together with tons of documentation. 
Um, and then, you know, there are people in Florida and Texas and, and Arizona and various other states who are taking all of this seriously, but not yet enough. So I heard a couple of things. One, and I, and I wouldn't retract, I, I'd change the word focus, but I would change it from a focus on long-term to fortitude. I mean, you say we've got, we've got no time to waste, and I agree. And they've been working on overturning Roe versus Wade, not for six months, but for you know decades, right? They've been working on reshaping the federal courts and even building some of these vast donor relationships, even Barry side, uh, that donor relationship didn't start out with a $1.6 billion gift, right? It started out with large, but not that large of gifts. So, I, but I, you added one that I missed, which is urgency, right? So this, this mixture uh, both this mixture of broad focus and targeted focus geographically, but also this focus on, yeah, fortitude plus urgency, plus recognizing what are the absolute needs of the moment and acting on those needs. Uh, any other lessons? Oh, and you added another one to the, to the list that I'm making here, which is uh, that they study, that they are smart and strategic, that they do the work to think about what's the best way to call something. How can we create a, a rhetorical movement uh, so that uh, so that that because that just doesn't happen. But then all of a sudden they call it what you say, uh, uh, the example you use birthday abortions, I believe the I believe the term you use as an example. So they're they're smart and strategic with language. Any other parts of the playbook that people should be aware of? Absolutely. Um, so in the 2016 election, actually, the winner of the presidential election was didn't vote. Right. So many Americans don't vote that it really throws the contest to whoever mobilizes the most uh, previously unengaged voters. Now, one thing that history teaches us is that, you know, life is high school. It's all about peer pressure. Right. So if you have a union, a strong union that gets people together and says, all right, let's talk about the election. Let's talk about the issues. Talk to your friends uh, and go door knocking. Right. Uh, that gave the Democrats strength from, you know, before the New Deal era and beyond. They people in the Council for National Policy, the DeVosses in Michigan, the Coke machine in Wisconsin, set out to cripple the trade unions in those states. And the Democratic vote dropped by an average of 3.5%, which handed it to the Republicans. And in the meantime, at the same time that the Democrats lost these, these important cohorts, they doubled down on the churches and the peer pressure that you get from those communities. So, and, and in the meantime, I mean, I've been to a number of campuses speaking and Turning Point USA is all over the map and the progressive organizations are largely silent. So I don't know what's going on with organizing in this country, but you know, I would say invest in the pizza, get people in the room together, get people talking about what's real in their lives and inform them about this disinformation that leads them to vote based on lies. So, I mean, you know, the, I, I say that my book is, is helping people look under the hood, right? I talk a lot about the mechanics of elections. I would really like to live in a country where the majority of the vote elected the government, but what the, hey, I don't. That's not how it works here. You got to study the system and you've got to win in order to change it. 
So in the meantime, you've got to work with the system you've got. Um, so they did that. And there, I believe there is still time to, to salvage what's good about our system that would leave us in a position to improve it in the future. So I added two more things. One was foc- a focus on power itself in addition to the policy manifestations of power. Right? That includes uh, being intentional with who your political enemies are. Maybe maybe your enemies, if you're the uh, council on national policy, your enemy wouldn't be your U.S. senator who was of your, the political party you preferred who had taken a, a dumb picture some years ago, that you'd train your sights on somebody who was truly an enemy. You wouldn't eat your own quite as much. You'd also work on building uh, voting rules that benefited your team. You would work on sort of the structural rules, not only the why purportedly not only a marginal tax rates and and how do you and how do you work on or work against women's right to choose, but even the power itself. And then what I, I also loved what I heard you say about focusing on uh, mobilizing by way of peer pressure, by way of social proof, by way of engaging in community and your your advice or even admonition to invest in the pizza. Well, which is what the Cokes do. I mean, you know, their student groups is like, come for free pizza and leave a Republican voter. And, you know, it works. But yeah, it's, it's, it is pretty much politics 101, right? But you have to be willing to invest in it. I think the other part is that I recommend to you and your listeners a book by my Columbia colleague, Mark Lilla, called The Once and Future Liberal. And he talks about the Democratic Party as a set of competing victimizations. So you have the feminists and the African-Americans and the LGBT communities competing with each other for primacy in a way that ends up being divisive. And in the meantime, it leaves out a lot of voters. So when they come back and, you know, people in, you know, Arkansas, Oklahoma, which used to have Democratic elected officials, hear that Black Lives Matter, but the term All Lives Matter is anathema, it doesn't play well. Why should we not be able to say All Lives Matter? Because that includes Black Lives Matter. And I think that what you want to do is, again, expand the tent and make people feel that there is a safe center where you can say American citizens should be treated with respect and should not be deprived of their rights. And that is a pretty good formula, right? It covers racial minorities. It covers religious minorities. It covers LGBT people, right? Um, if you, if, but it also covers those older white high propensity voters that you need in these swing states. Now that may sound radically centrist, but I think that winning is a good idea. Well, a, sh- a shared set, I, I think you're onto something so important, a shared set of fundamental principles, right? Not only a, uh, an uneasy coalition of people with legitimate grievance, but a shared set of fundamental principles, which if done right, would help to address uh, shared or even disparate grievances. If what you want is a democracy, if you want to have a governing coalition, if you want actually to solve problems using political structures, you got to get there. 
and it's really important. And and so I applaud it and I appreciate it. The uh, and and relatedly, not just working on power and and I've seen this up close to be clear. Not just working on power within the movement, but try to build the movement, right? Not only trying to to figure out how you can be the most influential kid around the table, but how do you make sure that table actually gets bigger, or that or that what that table is able to do gets stronger? I appreciate it. The uh, and I think you'll call your own play, which I appreciate and expect, but there might be others. You mentioned the Washington Spectator, New Republic. You mentioned the importance of journalists looking at the complexity, looking under the hood, being an auto mechanic and not just watching the race, uh, watching the cars zoom by. If we want to track this stuff, if we wanted to see a good map of sort of, to use your term, radical right power, uh, or of the, you know, kind of Christo Republican power apparatus or the anti-democracy forces or et cetera. Has anybody done that mapping really well or where is the best map somebody could see? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's a moving target. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there, I mean, if, if you look at the various diagrams or, you know, every book I ever write has dramatis personae in the beginning where I list individuals and organizations who are key mm-hmm. to the narrative. And that goes for Shadow Network too. It's not comprehensive, um, and I don't think it can be. And it shifts. One thing is that these people are very skillful at morphing, and tracking them is a big challenge. Um, so, so you know, you'll find their website, and then the next week you'll find out they changed one letter in their URL, so they're not there anymore, right? Or uh, they have, you know, like all of these shifting organizational names and from one year to the next, it's the same people on the same board, but the organization is. So the Center for Media and Democracy does does a great job in, in covering this. Um, and I've been really fortunate to, to work with them. Um, Lisa Graves uh, has True North Research. She does an excellent job at tracking some of the developments in the judiciary. I already mentioned the University of Virginia. Uh, There's a political scientist named Larry Sabato who has something called the crystal ball. So um, they do very detailed uh, analyses and polling of specific districts. Uh, it's, It's work and what we really need is more people in the major media to, to, to report on these developments, crediting the people who do the original research um, and, and popularizing the understanding. And that's happening gradually. I wish it would happen faster. Well, it even wonders as the, as the, as the uh, uh, you know, sometime, uh, you know, tech adjacent entrepreneur side of me thinks about it. And I don't mean on the money-making side, I mean on the problem-solving side, because I think this would be a not for purpose of making money. It'd be a wiki project, but, but having a, having a wiki map, cause you're right. It changes a lot. Right. And what, and what, Oh, why am I forgetting the right wing um, uh, right wing, former Fox news talk host now who has his own thing uh, who used to do the the blackboards, right. He do the blackboard and he would, he would say, this group is connected to this group and funding this group and funding this group and trying to, connect everything to George Soros and hint, hint, nudge, nudge, George Soros is Jewish. The, uh, uh, 
it is uh, that a, that a wiki map of this stuff is the idea that comes to mind. But included some of the, inc- with respect to some of the nodes on this, some back to the people. The current president, I believe, is what Thomas Fitton. Tell us about Thomas Fitton. Yeah, well, uh, he. And by he president, runs, I don't mean president of the United States. I mean president of the Council on National Policy. The Council for National Policy. Yeah. Uh, well, he uh, looks like a bodybuilder who wears very tight shirts. It kind of has this Jack Lane look. Um, and he's all about finding legal maneuvers to uh, advance their cause in the federal courts. And of course, because he's got an ally in Leonard Leo in, in terms of the federal court appointments and the Trump judges, uh, they've got uh, an operation that that is has been advancing. And there are other organizations, the Alliance Defending Freedom is one of them that was involved in, and there, uh, there's another one that's based in Texas. So, and, and actually they also have a law student fellowship that Josh Hawley was involved in, surprise, surprise. So, you know, um, they've, they've got a pipeline, a leadership pipeline that goes all the way from law school up to the Senate. Um, now, I have not seen that Josh Hawley was a member of the Council for National Policy, but Mike Pence is. Mike Pence is a dues-paying member. Um, and, you know, if you go through the list, uh, the roster that I talked about uh, in the New Republic article, I tried to analyze the roles that the different prominent members play within the network. This is, this is really useful stuff. And Jenny Thomas is uh, on the board of their 501 C4, which is their lobbying organization It's called CNP action. So if your uh, listeners are really dedicated and if they want to live up to the democracy nerd label, you can go to uh, go online and see her talking at the Council for National Policy about how to manipulate the election, right? And her, uh, by the way, her husband, Clarence Thomas of the Supreme Court spoke at the CNP. So it's a very cozy group. The, in terms of priorities right now, uh, what do you see as, or what have they said, or what does Jenny Thomas say our current critical priorities that might not be immediately obvious to people? Uh, well, I, I think that they're going hell for leather on, on rolling back rights for women, including abortion rights. And we're seeing some really horrific results there. We're seeing results where, you know, like uh, an 80 pound, 10-year-old who's raped by a relative is forced to bear a child at great risk to her life because they've passed such draconian abortion laws in states. You have just unspeakable cases happening. You have women with ectopic pregnancies, which will never result in a child, a living child, being forced to risk their lives because they can't have a procedure and because doctors are terrorized. So this is one item that's high on their agenda. They are going after LGBT populations and especially trans people with a cruelty that is truly breathtaking. 
you know, these, these, especially these young people who've never done harm to anyone and they're being lied about, they're being deprived of medical care, they're being terrorized. The cruelty is really hard to accept. Uh, but along the way, they also plan to roll back every environmental uh, regulation you can imagine. And above all, they want to paralyze the Biden administration. They've been doing a pretty good job of that. Uh, you know, the debt ceiling debate is uh, something that doesn't serve any, any Americans' interests. Uh, but above all, if they are able to seize the White House and the Congress and next year, I don't know at this moment what would stop them from cementing their control for the foreseeable future. CNP's February 2022 was a conference, I think was sponsored by the Heritage Foundation. Most of our listeners are probably aware of who the Heritage Foundation is. You can explain it more for people who are unfamiliar, but you describe, I think, what you call a three-legged stool of the extreme conservatives you say that the heritage foundation as the as the primary think tank but not the only one so there's sort of the think tank leg uh, there's alec as the state level bill mill that can provide the model legislation that not only can impact those states and also impact the power structure in those states that impacts federal elections not to mention state elections or including st- as well as state elections uh, but then also ideas and model legislation that can trickle up so when there ever is a, a Republican trifecta, wherever there is a Republican Senate and House and presidency, then they'll just roll through all that stuff and it'll already have states that have passed similar things. We're now seeing it with anti-abortion legislation. We've been seeing it in various ways uh, for years. And then the third leg, so you've got the think tank, you've got the model legislation mill bill, Alec. And then you've got the coordinating body, what you say, the CNP, the Council for National Policy, that is that coordinating body for donors, media, and activists. And so I don't know if that leg has multiple legs, but did I get that explanation right or what you'd add, what would you add to it or correct from what I said? Well, so so yeah, when you look under the hood, you also have to see how the gears mesh. So let's take uh, something like the abortion bill pill case in Texas uh, last month. You have a legislature that's a Republican legislature which will pass legislation. It can then be challenged, but it goes to a court in a district with a federal judge that was appointed from this same set of organizations. And you can keep appealing until it goes up to the Supreme Court, but hey, guess what? Uh, You now have a majority on the Supreme Court who are aligned with the CNP uh, policies. So it's basically, we've got a highway where the exit ramps are being closed off one by one. They're not all closed off, but if, uh, you know, but they've made significant progress. We've discussed on this program the use of critical race theory as a sort of conservative boogeyman that helped secure, among other things, the election of Glenn Youngkin as governor of Virginia in 2021. Any role that the CNP played in the proliferation of critical race theory to help Youngkin's election or more generally? 
Absolutely. And I wrote an article about it for the Washington Spectator that people can find for free online. Um, one thing that you had was this organization of disruption of school boards in, in Virginia suburbs. And one approach, and these were organized by the Leadership Institute, the Family Research Council, and other CNP partners. So they went to these affluent suburbs and said, affirmative action will mean that your kid, if they're white, won't get into the uh, elite program and they won't get into an elite college because the minorities will be favored. And they whipped up some kind of hysteria. Uh, I've talked to some of these parents and the school board disruption got really ugly. You had them leaving dead rats on people's doorsteps. You had them vandalizing their cars over school board positions. And again, finding the vulnerabilities in these voting populations and exploiting them through, through disinformation. And the whole way that they played critical race theory, which was crafted by one of their uh, people named Christopher Rufo, was to say, you know, again, it was playing the race card and suggesting that whites would be disadvantaged in some way by any kind of uh, honoring of the history of African-Americans in the United States. And now the way it's spreading is just extraordinary. You have African-American authors like Maya Angelou, like Toni Morrison being banned in school libraries. Uh, but but they're also very clever because, again, uh, they have a, an African-American pastor, Pentecostal, who went to the African-American uh, areas in Virginia and played a different card. He bought up a lot of radio ads and he also told the African-American churchgoers that they were going to be strong armed into getting vaccinations in order to keep their jobs and playing that anxiety. So uh, yeah, they're, they're very agile. They, they approach things in multiple fronts. And again, this was another really, and these are close elections. Um, one thing that I talk about in the book that I think is really important is that they understand the power of radio in these states and in these elections. And the Democrats have pretty much written off radio. So you have a lot of people in states where people drive their cars with the radio on who are being indoctrinated through these local radio stations. Uh, and again, in the Virginia race, you had the radio stations in the African-American communities where, you know, this, this pastor was chortling because he said, you know, the Democrats don't even know these radio stations exist. You added another, not only you, you that coordination with media needs to go on the list, the little notes I'm taking. And, and, but you've said one a couple of times now that I failed to respond to or to catalog, which is the targeting of uh, not microgroups. That wasn't your term, but the, what was your term? The target uh, of aggrieved groups, the identifying of a, of a sector of voters and going after that sector of voters. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that, the tradition in recent years in American politics has been one size fits all advertising, right? So you buy a TV ad in an election for a major market 
And anybody who sees the TV ad is going to get the same message. And frankly, they're hugely expensive. Uh, I think that a lot of times you've got the same cronies who are involved in making the ads and, and, and buying the ads and making money along the way, whether they work very well or not. You go to a local radio station and you can hone that advertising to the population in that community and their concerns. So uh, it appears that one is more effective than the other. What do we know about the donors to the CMP? I know they're not required to disclose them, at least is my understanding. Yeah, the, the CMP does not have that big a budget. It's like just over $300,000. I mean, I'm sorry, $3 million. Um, I was going $300,000 is quite manageable. $3 million is still pretty manageable. Yeah, well, not not in this world of, of you know, billions. But but again, no, I'm saying manageable to I'm saying manageable to raise. I'm saying three hundred thousand ain't that much money. It's a lot of money to a person. But if you have to raise three million dollars, I'm just trying to pile on to your word small. Keep going. Yeah, but um, you know, it's it's again for that amount of money, they have some staff members and they organize a few meetings every year. The flow of the money goes to these partner organizations, and the the CNP exists to help direct the flow. Um. And the DeVosses, I can't remember how many billion dollars they have, uh, but but people get caught up in the money. The Democrats actually have more money than these groups, but it is not as coordinated. Where do you get your numbers? Because I've heard another friend of mine who uh, built a who who built an eight figure uh, political organization. Uh, made a similar claim. She and I sort of debated about it. It sort of depends on what you count. Where do you get your numbers on budgets? Oh my goodness. I belong to a group of dogged people who crawl around in federal tax records yeah. and uh yeah and and nonprofit sites. ProPublica has a good one, the federal tax records, you can get other stuff. One of the big problems is that even the best of these sites are usually a year or two out of date. Yeah. You know, you, it's you basically don't get real-time financial information, but you can get quite a lot. Um, and so like all of my sources are footnoted in the book. And I think that I, uh, I learned so much from Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, because she did really extraordinary work in, in following the money. And then there are others like the Council, the, the Center for Media and Democracy in Wisconsin that does a great job with it. Um, so yeah, there are ways, and it, if you get the numbers, they tend to be fairly reliable, if not up to date. So it's, yeah, and we can get some, but in part inspired by uh, sort of an understanding of dark money. I do find it challenging to track in the aggregate. I do try, and and being able to say, you know, blank is more than blank, I found tricky because uh, not only because of the ability to uh, not only determining what to count, uh, but also making sure you're counting everything. Well, yeah. And, and of course, the whole idea of dark money is that there's a lot you can't it's count. Secret. It's supposed to be secret. I was, well, in fact, Chris Hayes asked me years ago on MCNBC, it's like, what's the impact of how much dark money, how much secret money, he's the term secret money, how much secret money is coming into our state? And I said, oh, we don't know because it's secret. 
And so I know exactly. that I know that it's can be tricky. And you've got what you know they're called donor advised funds, right? So the idea and and the one that's connected with both the Council for National Policy and with the family uh, is the National Christian Foundation. And so you've got all of these high net worth individuals and families that put money into the pot and then it's distributed among these organizations. So you have very few fingerprints. So I've got to, before we wrap, ask the question, and I'll give more of a preamble to the question for good or for ill, but I've got to ask the question, so what do we do about it? For people who love democracy, or people who love the middle class, people who love the environment, what do we do about it? Now, I've already written down some lessons, uh, integration and coordination, understanding urgency, focusing broad as well as narrow long-term as well as that urgency, think in terms of leadership development, focus on swing districts, look at targeting sectors of voters. It's not just one size fits all. Be smart and strategic, including with language, mobilized by way of social proof, engaging community, investing in the pizza. Uh, think not only in terms of building power within the movement, but building the movement itself, not just being a movement of competing victimizations, but how can you find shared principles to grow something that can actually win majorities, uh, build those shared fundamental principles, uh, use media, including uh, media that might be neglected, including radio that resonates, of course, for, with us. Uh, you also said something that's different from their playbook, which is urging journalists to look at the complexity to, yeah, they can use the term MAGA Republican, but also what is below the surface? What is under the hood? What else do we need to know? What else do, what do we need to do about it? Well, first of all, we need massive support for local journalism on a state level, state house level, local communities um you you've got you've got people who are just <sighs> struggling so hard to cover local politics and some of these people are earning like twenty five thousand dollars a year hardly making it but they're so dedicated and you have to not only support their efforts but amplify them um i think you need to reach out to people who are different from you and not uh you know, and, and understand how language is played in different, in different venues. So, so for example, where I grew up, if you said Christian nationalists, they'd say, well, isn't that a good thing? I'm a Christian and I love my country. What's, what's wrong with that? Right. Yeah, so it sounds like faith. Like if you said faithful patriot, faithful patriot would be something that most people wanted to be. Well, you know, are we going to say that we're against our country? Yeah, right. Exactly. So I don't think that a lot of the language that is emerging, a lot of it from academia is helping because it tends to be stigmatizing rather than inclusive. Um, and I, I do believe, I mean, call me an idealist, whatever, but ultimately we can find more in common than what we find that separates us. And the people who really care about this country should realize that we're only a couple of steps away from some serious violence. So there's really no, no time to waste. I, we're still a chance to use the levers of democracy to defend democracy. But that period's not going to last forever. We're going to speak with Ann Nelson. You can find her stuff at New Republic, The Washington Spectator, on her website at annnelson.com. I think it's a dash between Ann and Nelson.com. You don't want to go to hyphen, other Ann Nelson. Hyphen. Oh, I, did I say dash? I, I'll, I'll take hyphen. 
ann-nelson.com. And thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for your work and thanks for being a democracy nerd. Thank you, Jeff, and you too. You will. Nerds unite. (laughs) Democracy Nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, democracy.